Alright, so um, we're drawing to the end of our Saints series, as I said. This is one of my favorite series every single year. Um, although it's weird because when I start to announce this series every year, I kind of get nervous um, because, uh, number one, I'm always nervous people are going to freak out that we celebrate All Saints Day, which is something that's typically only celebrated in like the more high liturgical churches, Catholic churches, Anglican Episcopalian type stuff. And not only do we celebrate All Saints Day, we like drag it out for a month. Um, which I'm always nervous people will freak out about. Uh, and then there's also the fact that we're focusing on people rather than like a particular text of the Scripture. Um, and so even though we try to talk about, you know, something in the Scripture that they exemplify or maybe um, a passage that really shaped their lives, um, our main study is on people and not the text. And so that always feels a little weird. Uh, but then I, I dive back into Hebrews 11 um, every year. And I remember that Hebrews 11 is just a saint series. It's, uh, it's the writer um, for an entire chapter. The, awesome, the author focuses on awesome people from the past who did great things because of their faith um, and how amazing it is to remember that those people are on our team. Like, those are our people. And, uh, and they're just ordinary people. They're not, like, special. They're just ordinary people who did great things because of their relationship with God. And, uh, which means that you and I can do likewise. Uh, there's no difference between them and us, which I think is what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. Uh, so, um, uh, so I think he's like basically like if you were to look at these people and spend time with their lives, it should make you want to start shaking some things off and like, and move and do things different, chase after Jesus different. Does anybody know who Roger Bannister is? Like right off the top of your head? The runner, yeah, that's awesome. Um, Roger Bannister <clears throat> was the first person to break the four-minute mile. First person to run the mile in under four minutes. Um, three minutes, 59, and four-tenths of a second. Now, that could have been a, like a stopwatch problem. I mean, right there, we're talking barely beat the four-minute mile. Um, but what a lot of people don't realize <clears throat> is that happened in 1954, that, that Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. And it was 68 years before that, in 1886, that running coaches theorized that a human being should be able to run a mile in under four minutes. It was just a theory. And so scientists went to work on the problem. They, they, they put together the exact weather conditions that would be necessary, the elevation that would be most conducive, the type of track it would need to be on. It would need to be on a dry clay track. Like they had it all broken down where you could run your fastest. Um, <clears throat> and even the kind of diet and regimen the athlete would need to be on. And they applied all these conditions to the best runners in the world, and the barrier stayed in place for 68 years. Nobody could do it. Um, and everyone stopped running against each other, and everybody was just running against the clock, running against this elusive barrier of the four-minute mile. And uh, in 1954, Roger Bannister, on a cold and rainy day with little scientific training, um, broke the barrier um, that had stood for so long. He got to be the world record-holding fastest mile runner for 46 days. And then someone else beat it um, by a full two seconds. And the next year, several people broke the record. In one race, the next year, three people broke the four-minute mile all in the same race. Um, so he, uh, <clears throat> he was the first, but not for long. Um, and since Bannister's feet, thousands of runners um, have broken the four-minute mile. Uh, but the big thing is since 1954, when it comes to breaking barriers like the four-minute mile, psychologists have kind of told the natural scientists to hop in the back seat. When it comes to this kind of barrier, it has way less to do with science and way more to do with the mind and the heart. Um, and I would argue that the writer of Hebrews knew that 2,000 years ago. Um, he didn't uh, just tell his runners to go run a great race. 
he ensured that we would know the race could be run. Others have run it. Others have done this. The barrier to, to, has been break, broken. Not perfect runners, not perfect condition, conditions. Runners just like you and me broke barriers that you would think are unbreakable. Uh, and after telling us about the Roger Bannisters of the faith, he said, now you go run. Go. Break barriers, set records, do amazing things for God. Because with faith you can. You can. Um, but we have to be careful with a study like this. Uh, because the effect it can have an effect on you. Um, Graham and I were talking um, earlier this week. We've been working really hard to make some changes in youth group. Um, in fact, I would be asking you to, to be praying for our youth group right now. Because um, we are going through some changes. Some cool things are happening and we need your prayers. Um, uh, Graham's been doing an amazing job. Uh, but over the past several months particularly with some of the new kids in our church that are moving up into youth group age and some of the friends that they've been bringing. The group has grown a lot recently and the, and the dynamics have changed, the age, the average age has changed, the gender average has changed. Like, there's been a lot of changes over the last couple of months. And so we've been trying to do our best to make sure we have our ducks in a row and uh, trying to raise the fun and cool level and, and just trying to make some healthy changes that, um, you know, before this group uh, has a chance to, to kind of set in routines and things. Um, so be praying for us. It's important. Uh, but earlier this week, um, I was like throwing a thousand things at Graham. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need to do this. And he was like, hold on a second. Like, let's make sure everything we do is sustainable. We don't want to promise a bunch of things we can't. Like, we know we both have limits. We both have time constraints. Like, let's, let's make sure we can deliver before we make all these promises. And I was like, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm steeped in this stupid saint series and my faith is like sky high and I'm like losing my mind. I'm like, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. We can believe for that. I'm like believing for crazy things. Um, and, uh, and so I think that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews had in mind. I think he was like, he said this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let's strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sins that so easily trip us up and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. So that's like, that's like what's been going on in my soul. I'm reading these people and the things they believe for and the things they did with like nothing, just praying that God would send the resources. And, and we know it can be done. 11, Hebrews 11 proves it can be done. George Mueller proves it can be done. Michael Faraday proves it can be done. The seven ordinary radicals who refuse to bow to God's a day prove it can be done. <clears throat> well, okay, i got to slow down. Um, and we're never going to get to this morning, Saint. Woo! Um, I am pumped up. Okay, um, so we talk, <laughs> bring it down, Chris. Bring it down. We talked a couple weeks ago, back into our normal speaking voice, um, about Michael Faraday. Um, I told you that uh, it was a difficult message for me because um, the temptation to like nerd out on Faraday's life um, was definitely there. And we could have spent hours talking about all of his cool scientific discoveries and, and his faith, and it was neat. Well, this morning is almost as difficult. Um, not just because of the content, um, but this morning saint, it's more the proximity of this morning saint to somebody else that I would love to nerd out about. Um, this morning saint is Edith Schaefer. Um, anybody know who Edith Schaefer is? Some, maybe. Um, well, you will soon. Edith Schaefer was, um, among many other um, amazing things, the wife of Francis Schaefer, whom, uh, for some reason, um, I'd heard a lot about, but had never really spent much time studying. Um, and I have to confess, after this series, I totally plan to binge out on some of their books. They've written a lot of books. And uh, I read uh, their full biography and several articles and things in preparation for this marriage. But I can't wait to, like, dive into the canon of their books. 
But um, Francis Schaeffer is often considered kind of the father of modern apologetics um, because he's one of the first and really most prolific thinkers to bring the truths of Scripture to the modern era. Um, when I say modern era, I mean mostly the mid-20th century. Um, uh, I've been, uh, if, you, if you like reading apologetics or any of the newer apologetic stuff, you can probably thank Francis Schaeffer for a lot of that. And though Francis is not our saint that we're discussing this morning, I do need to offer a brief look at his life um, and, and uh, really his mind in order to get a full picture of the woman he spent his life with. So Francis was not raised in a Christian home. Um, his parents were actually turned off by the idea of religion, mostly because they hadn't seen, they were a hard-working, blue-collar family, and they really hadn't seen much good um, come out of the Christians around them, um, especially the pastors. They didn't feel like pastors were very hard-working, and, uh, and they didn't feel like they contributed that much. And so, um, so they had a real low view of, of uh, faith and religion. I think they actually went to church still, because like everybody went to church, but they, they, uh, they didn't have a very high view of it. So, um, so, so Francis was brought up to work a trade. He was a blue-collar family. Um, and the plan was, if they could afford it, to send him to college to get an electrical engineering degree so he could come back and work for the family business, uh, his father's uh, uh, company. Uh, but, but when Francis was in middle school... Um, he serendipitously stumbled upon Greek philosophy. He got a book of Greek philosophy. And, uh, and he loved the logical progression of thought and the ways that these thinkers asked questions that Francis wouldn't have even dreamed of, let alone known how to answer. Um, and he kind of dived in. He was hooked into this world of thoughts and ideas. And uh, there was only one problem. None of these thinkers had any answers to like the big questions in Francis's heart. Like he loved the things they thought about, but it all felt ethereal and out there and didn't uh, mean, like they didn't seem to answer the why questions of life. Um, and, uh, and so he was beginning to feel about philosophy kind of the way his dad felt about religion. Kind of fun, kind of cool, useless. Like what's it for? Um, but a thirst had now opened up in him. A thirst for like knowledge and understanding. And, and, uh, and he liked thinking about big questions. Um, he was convinced the answers had to be out there somewhere. Um, and he had already dismissed the Bible because his dad's opinion of, of the faith, he had already like, oh, the Bible doesn't really have anything to say. Um, but it was actually the Greek philosophers who, who had impressed upon him that you never dismiss an idea without giving it full credence. You, you have to push through your biases and give everything an equal answer. And so he actually, to honor the philosophers he'd been reading, decided to read his Bible. Decided to get himself a Bible and read it just so he could dismiss it as one of the options to the big questions in life. Um, and so, knowing nothing about the Bible, he went and got one. And uh, and not knowing how it was structured, what it was about, he started on page one, like you would. Like he started reading it from the beginning, the beginning of Genesis. And uh, so he started in Genesis um, and was blown away by chapter four. He felt like, Creation, the creation narrative, um, the original design of humans, the, the fall and subsequent consequences answered everything he had ever wondered about life. It explained why people were the way they were. It explained why the world was the way it was. It explained more to him than he had found in Greek philosophy. So he was absolutely hooked. And he, so he continued to read the book. And as the salvation narrative unfolded, he walked into a field one day and gave his life to Jesus. Like had no idea how to do that or what that meant. He just knew that he wanted to follow Jesus the way the people in the Bible, uh, primarily the book of Acts, were doing. Like, just, I want to do this. And so he surrendered his life to Christ. Um, and since he knew no one else in his world that truly followed Christ the way he felt the Bible said you to, he, he went to a, 
kind of a denominational church that was very religious, but not very many really deeply passionate, faithful people in it. And so he just kind of stayed by himself. He didn't really get plugged into a good Christian fellowship for years. Um, and when it came time for him to go to college, um, to his parents' disappointment, he revealed to him them that he felt like he was called to the ministry um, and wanted to pursue an education and eventually seminary. Um, and so on the day he left for college, his dad literally begged him, like on his knees, begged him not to go. Like, please stick to the plan. Get your uh, engineering degree and come home. Um, and so Francis took it seriously and went down in his basement. And he spent an afternoon praying to God, God, if this is really something you want me to do, I want you to reveal it to me. And he came up more solid in his faith than he was supposed to be in ministry. Um, and eventually his dad agreed to pay for school. And much later, in seeing Francis's life and how Francis lived out his faith, his, da- his dad actually became a believer as well, which is cool. So while, while Francis is being raised in this like secular, blue-collar home away from church, Edith is being raised a missionary kid in China, um, deeply um, engrossed in ministry and uh, the gospel. Um, she often said she couldn't remember a day that she didn't believe in Jesus. She was, from a very young age, was passionate about Jesus, um, raised in that home. Um, and so when her family returned to the States, Edith attended a Christian school where she often debated theology. She had a very keen mind and, and, uh, and was known for being kind of stubborn um, and having a passion for biblical accuracy. In fact, just a fun little story about her stubbornness. Um, Francis can confessed to like one of his biggest struggles in life was his temper. He had a pretty hot temper. And so one day she got in a fender bender and dented the car and he kind of lost his cool and yelled at her. And so she vowed to never drive again. And this was like early in their marriage. And for the rest of her life, even after he was dead, she never drove a car again. Like she was, and mostly, even though a lot of water was under the bridge, it was mostly because she had made a vow and she was going to stick to it. Like you do not break your vows. So she never drove a car again because of this one fender bender. Um, so she was that kind of stubborn. Like I, she, once she set her hook, she was in. Um, but anyway, while Frank was in college, he attended a lecture by this popular Christian speaker who turned out to be a, a very liberal theologian. And Frank was appalled by um, this man's treatment of Scripture and orthodox belief. Uh, so at the end, the floor was open for questions and debate. And uh, Francis stood up to do his best to argue um, for the orthodox position against this speaker. Um, and in this whole arena, there was only one other person who stood up with him to debate this guy and he admits later she was doing a way better job than I was um, and it turned out to be his, his future wife Edith his, his only ally that night um, was this woman who was just as passionate about the scriptures he was and they immediately fell in love um, they actually went to two different schools and so dated long distance for three years with nothing but sporadic visits and, and love letters to send back and forth so no matter what the sitcoms tell you it can work um, <laughs> and uh and so they, they uh, shortly after they graduated, they married, and, uh, and Francis got ready for seminary studies. Um, Edith was known for needing very little sleep, so she, um, she was a seamstress, so she worked as a seamstress to help put them through seminary. And, uh, and every night when he would get home, she would stay awake so she could ask him everything he learned. They always joked that she got a seminary education without having to pay tuition, because she would wait for Francis to come home to teach her the new thing that he learned that day. Um, but, uh, but her ability to make money as a seamstress and, and Francis's ability to do a blue-collar trade job, um, which very few seminary students could do, allowed them to provide for themselves while he went to school. But sewing also allowed Edith to work with people. Um, uh, she, uh, she spent a lot of time um, with people, hearing about their life struggles, hearing about what they were going through. And so while Francis is in this world of academia and ideas, 
Edith is doing ministry with people, and a lot of them were hurting. Um, and she found a, a real love for talking to people and, and hearing what was going on in the world. Um, before Francis could complete his studies, the Presbyterian Church was sitting on the edge of kind of a split um, between the, the liberal faction and the conservative faction. And Francis was invited to help open a new seminary that would hold to the conservative tradition of the denomination um, in the midst of all these theological struggles. So Francis helped to open Faith Theological Seminary where he finished his studies and then also helped to teach. And after graduating, they entered the pastorate. Um, and, uh, and he took various small churches in the Presbyterian denomination and kind of revitalized them um, and got them growing again. Um, and Edith was absolutely in heaven. Um, in their first church, they visited people, got to know them, got into their lives, and, uh, and, and she was uh, doing ministry amongst people, which was her passion. And they also started um, teaching the kids in their church. They began to minister um, to kids specifically, which wasn't done that often then. Uh, kids just kind of went to church with everybody else, and they had Sunday school, which was kind of academic back then. It was tend to be where you learn to read and write and, and do those things. And so they started writing kids' curriculum about the gospel and, uh, and, and having these kids' services um, in their basement. They would have kids over, and they would, they would do like a service for the kids. Um, and then other people started noticing, they're like, hey, can we do that with some of the kids in our neighborhood? So before long, they had like 20 kids services using their curriculum in people's basements all over Pennsylvania um, where they were. And, uh, and they were loving it. Um, and so because the Presbyterian, Presbyterian church back then didn't like for a pastor to stay anywhere more than like three years, at the end of three years, they kind of rotated him and they wound up in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and uh, they were asked to be kind of associate pastors um, of a much larger church and they accepted it and they immediately started what they then started calling Children for Christ. Their services they'd been doing in Pennsylvania, they started them in St. Louis um, and they spread like crazy in St. Louis all over the place. And uh, Francis began teaching and preaching more, a lot of classes and sermons. Um, and Edith was loving this life of ministry they were building. Just all the people, all the relationships and, and she was eating it up. Well, in 1947, uh, because of the success of Children for Christ um, uh, and the kind of the impact that every church Francis went to, the impact they had on that church, he was asked to join a team um, to travel to Europe and evaluate the state of the church. Um, and and Francis' specific job was Christian youth in um, post-World War II Europe. Like, what state is the church in after all that mess? Like, are there any Christians left? How are they doing? What do they need? So he went on a three-month trip to war-torn Europe um, to, to see how the gospel was faring and what they needed. Um, and, uh, and to Fran's dismay, he started to feel the call to be a missionary in Europe, um, to, to go serve war-torn Europe for the gospel. Um, and... Uh, and as an administrator, they wanted him to go with the World Council or the American World Council, American Council of Christian Churches, um, and uh, and help rebuild the conservative church in Europe. Uh, and so this is where Edith prays a prayer that she would talk about for the rest of her life. Um, she loved people, like she really liked people. She loved the ministry because she loved people. She she believed that her her husband also loved people and was at his best self when he was with people. Um, she, uh, she knew that he had this tendency to get caught up in the world of theology and ideas and abstract thinking. And she feared that, literally feared for his soul 
that if he took an administrative job that was all about the theology and the thought and the space up here and wasn't really about people, that he would lose himself. Um, that he would he would uh, he would kind of forget himself. Apparently, um, in some of her most honest moments, she would say that when Francis stayed too much in the world of ideas, he was not very easy to live with. Um, he was not a very nice um, guy, and I can so relate to this. I was actually telling the small group this past Thursday that Esther has learned that fiction help pulls me out of that space. Um, when I get too up in my head, living in the world of theology and ideas, and um, and she catches me, like she'll be like, "Hey, babe, could you?" I'm like, "Babe, would you just give me a second? I'm thinking, like, like I get so caught up in my head, like this stuff is important and real life isn't." She's like, "You need to turn that off." and find some fiction. You need to find a good fiction book. doesn't matter who it's by. Just go read some fiction and get out of that, that idea space. And, uh, and it works for us. And so, um, so I can totally relate to, to Edith Schaefer going, oh my gosh, if Fran lives in the world of ideas, he's a goner. Um, but, uh, uh, she, so she earnestly poured out her heart, begging God not to let them leave their pastorate in St. Louis. She, she told God earnestly how she felt Francis needed people in his life. And how she was sure that this career as an administrator was wrong for them. She spoke of her love for having people in her home and how most of her best gifts were going to be wasted in Europe. She claimed that it was uh, forever, that this was one of her most authentic and gut-riching prayers. And God said no. <laughs> so in 1948, they moved to Europe. Um, they moved to Switzerland to take the administrative job. Francis fought battles of the mind every day, debating and writing arguments and counter-arguments and that he... That he he was super passionate about the truth and he loved it. Um, and he was, uh, uh, but through the whole thing, he was getting more and more frustrated with this process. The more he got to know the people on his team, the people in the, in the, the conservative side of all these arguments, um, in this fight for orthodoxy, the more he grew concerned that he didn't feel like their lives were really any different than the lives of the people on the other side. He didn't feel like the, the gospel was having a transformative effect on, on the people on his team. The, the people in the Council of Christian Churches engaged debates and fought for the truth and made all the right theological claims. And at the end of the day, it was like they clocked out and went back to ordinary lives. And, and the truth wasn't having this, this changing impact. And this really bugged Francis. Um, Edith, on the other hand, was having a ball. She was loving Switzerland. She, uh, she immediately, um, upon arriving, started up Children for Christ again. Uh, started with the curriculum they'd written in America. They quickly figured out they were going to have to write new curriculum, especially in light of the new context and, this, and, and the post-war context. And so she's writing curriculum. Francis is helping her write curriculum. She stayed up every night typing curriculum on carbon paper so that they could you know, get it out to as many people as possible. They had, they had uh, Children for Christ services popping up all over the place. And, uh, and she's loving it. So... So they're back to, uh, to, to writing children's curriculum. And it was, the, Francis said it was his one bright spot in this season as a, of administrative work. And, uh, and she's, and, and Francis, Edith's loving it. So in 1951, Francis Schaefer was drained, was completely and utterly drained from this job. Everything Edith had feared for him, if he'd gotten too far away from pastoring real people, happened. Um, he was frustrated that ideas, no matter how accurate, didn't seem to change people. And this bothered him. Um, on uh, his own side, was not being transformed by the gospel the way he thought they should. So he was at a crisis of faith. And one day, he came in and sat Edith down 
And he said, I need to tell you something because this is likely to affect you greatly. Um, he said, I, I need to go rethink my entire faith all the way back to the beginning. And it's very likely that afterwards I will no longer be a believer. So this could affect you. <laughs> could affect you that I may no longer be um, a Christian. So this missionary kid turned truth warrior who married a man with pastoral ambitions uh, and a like-minded passion for the truth and ministry. This man who dragged her away from her home and ministry and country she loved was now telling her it was very possible he would no longer be a Christian. So she did the only thing she could do. She left him. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no, no. She prayed. <laughs> That's what she did. She prayed. Um, she prayed like crazy. Um, you know, but, but she said it was like that whole, what do you get the person who has everything? You know, it's almost Christmas time. So you're like, what do you get the person who has everything? She felt that way about praying for Francis. She was like, like she didn't know anybody who could defend the gospel like her husband. So she's like, what could God teach Francis Schaefer that he doesn't already know about the gospel? Like, how does this work? Like, God just revealed this to him. Like, he knows it. Like, how do you pray for somebody who knows uh, everything he should know? Um, and so, uh, but she prayed. She just simply prayed that God would show up and reveal himself to Francis. And God did. Um, while working in their barn, um, thinking through his understanding of the universe and the role that God may play in it, um, Francis Shaver had an experience with the Holy Spirit um, that uh, not only regrounded his faith, but changed the way he thought about faith completely. Um, and, and his manner of teaching and, and living out his faith. Uh, it, it became far more experiential. Um, so from that point on, um, this was like the, the first pebble uh, that started a landslide that would lead to their true life's work um, and what they were best known for. So while Edith was praying for Francis, which she did every day, but while he was on his like rethinking journey, she redoubled her prayers for him. Um, one day while she was actively praying for him, she felt like uh, this peace come over. She felt like God said, it's okay. It's going to be okay. And so she said she tried to keep praying, but really couldn't. And so she she just sang some worship songs and said, okay, it's going to be okay. And it turns out that was the exact moment that Francis was having his barn experience, which is what he called it for the rest of his life, like when I had my barn experience um, with God. And so uh, not long after the, the barn experience, um, the Shavers had to go back to America for furlough. You know, they were part of a missionary organization that was um, funding them, and so they needed to report to their organization um, about everything that was happening in Europe, and, and, uh, and they also needed to raise funds to come back. Um, so by this point, um, Edith was really anxious to return to Switzerland. She was loving it. She wanted to get back to her kids and, and all the different chapters of Children for Christ all over Europe. Um, but while speaking in several churches, which is what missionaries did when they came back on furlough, and conferences and Presbyterian councils and just all the things that Francis was supposed to speak at, he continued to push this idea that the truth of the gospel should be transformative. That it wasn't just ideas you said yes to. Yeah, I, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Like, it should transform the life. The gospel wasn't just true statements that, that, that were enough all by themselves to change the sinner. Um, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit had to be, had to personally bring those truths to life in the heart of a believer for them to be transformative. That, uh, that, and we would consider that to be relatively normal. Apparently that wasn't, um, like a deep theology in the Presbyterian church at the time. Um, you couldn't just acknowledge a few concepts and go on about your life. It needed to be experienced and lived every bit as much as it needed to be believed. Like that, that the, the Holy Spirit had to take these true statements that are so true and bring them to life, um, in the heart of a believer. We would call it being born again. Like that, that it had to transform the heart. 
Um, in fact, he taught that these things were sort of the same thing. Faith and transformation went together. It wasn't just one. Um, so this is not a typical Presbyterian content at this time. Um, and little did Francis know, but um, his words weren't just having a pro- profound impact on some of the people listening. But uh, this was all happening at a, like a really crucial time in the Presbyterian denomination. The entire denomination was still on the verge of a split um, between liberal and conservative. And, uh, and, and people felt like Francis came back to preach this kind of newish message as a power play to get on top of the denomination. Um, they felt like he was trying to sway people to his side and they were concerned that, um, that if, if he kept preaching this kind of emotional, passionate um, gospel that, you know, he was touched. He was, they thought he was trying to take control of the Presbyterian denomination. Um, he was clueless to all this. He was just trying to share this awesome thing that happened to him in a barn. Um, but he got caught up in this, like, uh, political tornado. Um, so he was, uh, 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 they were, the missionary organization didn't really want to send him back in the middle of all this. Um, and so, uh, and so they were like, you know, you really need to stay and clean up this mess you just made. Um, you know, everybody's talking about Francis Schaefer and what he's preaching and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so he went back and told Edith, I don't know if we're going to get to go back. I kind of made a mess and we may have to stay. And guess who she had been reading? Because they didn't have any support. The missionary organization would not support them to go back. She had literally just been reading George Mueller. Like she, the, the same exact biography that I read. I had no idea that these two were related at all when I chose them for this year's Saint series. But she had just been reading George Mueller's biography that I read in preparation for week one. And, uh, and so she did what I was talking about at the beginning. She was like all pumped up with faith and like crazy losing her mind. Um, and so she, uh, so her faith in God's ability to provide was through the roof and she told Francis that she thought they needed to just go back to Switzerland with or without support. And, uh, and so, and just get back to work. And so that's exactly what they did. They, they took every penny they had to get back to Switzerland and they dove back into the work, figured if people wanted to, and so, uh, with nothing but prayer, the Shavers went back to Europe to continue writing children's curriculum and start more Children for Christ services anywhere they could put one. Um, and they prayed that God would meet their needs. They prayed regularly that God would meet their needs and God did. But as things were getting uglier in the denomination, some people were calling Francis to come back. They were and lead. Some people were calling for his head. Like it was, he was, all this drama was going on about Francis back in the States. And so finally he made a tough call um, because they did still, they were still sending some support, um, like uh, the stuff, some leftover stuff from his lap before his last furlough. And so he called them, uh, made a brutally tough decision to, uh, to, he said, please take me off your, your missionary roles. And if anybody wants to send this money directly, they can. But we would rather not be on the missionary roles while all this crud is going on and all this drama. We just soon stay out of it. And so, uh, so they did. And after making this brutally tough decision, like really cool miracles started taking place. Um, the country of Switzerland evicted them from their home. Um, it was kind of spooky. But um, they were in a highly Catholic area and their Children for Christ services were doing so well and making such an impact that the Catholic Church kind of got upset. And the Catholic Church called Switzerland and kicked them out. And so um, so they got kicked out of the, I don't know, if t- it's not a town or something, but whatever their little like town things are called, kicked them out of that one because that one was predominantly Catholic. And so, uh, so now they're homeless and they're missionaries with no support. And, uh, and so they prayed. Um, in fact, both Edith and Francis tell this story later in their books, but 
Um, they said they believe that God could answer prayers even before you pray them in response to faith he knows you're going to have. So you can stay up all night thinking about how that works. Um, uh, I don't know, but that's kind of uh, uh, exactly what happened. So they prayed something like this. Um, we need funds really bad, but actually we need them so quickly that you kind of would to have already had to lay this on somebody's heart to answer this prayer. And so we're just praying that you did that. Um, but that's exactly what happened. The next day, um, they received a letter that had been sent several days before with a note attached to it that said, God laid this heart on us to send you this money. And it turned out to be the exact um, amount they needed for a down payment for this chalet that they had been praying for forever. Um, they'd been praying that someday they would be able to afford this chalet. Edith was over the moon. It was like right out of a George Mueller story. She was like totally lit up. So they bought this chalet, um, and, uh, and almost immediately, this is the cool part, upon taking possession, they received a letter from the Swiss government um, that their permanent visas had been approved. They'd been waiting for this for a couple of years. Um, had they had that in place when they were in the previous thing, the Catholic Church wouldn't have been able to kick them out. Um, and so then they never would have got the chalet that they wanted. So it's one of those stories you look back and you're like, this is super cool. Um, so, uh, now they're living in this chalet um, as missionaries with no reliable support. And, uh, and this is when their daughter, um, Priscilla, brings home a couple friends from university. And uh, her friends had been asking like really hard questions and uh, about life and the Bible. And she was like, you know what? My dad is way better to answer these questions. Why don't you come home with us on break and you can ask him all your questions. And so she brings home like a handful of university students. Um, and this is when the real work of Francis and Edith Schaefer began. Um, these visits became so common that they eventually formalized uh, the idea. And in 1955, they started Labrie. Um, that was the chalet. So yeah, that's awesome, right? Um, so Labrie just means the shelter. And it became a place where people, usually seekers and skeptics, um, could come and do two things. They could come and ask their questions, their big, hard questions about life, the kind of questions that Francis was wrestling with when he first picked up Greek philosophy um, in an honest and informed environment. And the second thing they got to do was simply experience what a life of faith looked like. When people came to Labrie, they ate meals with the family, they worked in the garden with the family, they played games with the family, they did dishes with the family, and of course, they learned the Bible and prayed with the family. Um, and uh, most people came to talk to Francis but anyone you ask um, said that what really changed their hearts was Edith. Just the way she... <sighs> don't know where that came from. The way she loved people. Uh, in fact, Francis Schaeffer wrote 22 books and Edith wrote 20. And Francis was quoted all the time saying, um, you couldn't read his books without her books. He was like, you can read her books without his books, you'll be fine. But if you read my books without her books, you'll get all messed up. Like, you, no, no believer should read just the ideas and thoughts without the, the real uh, side attached to it. Um, but Labrie went on to welcome thousands and thousands and thousands of seekers um, from literally all over the globe, every single part of the planet, came to ask their biggest questions about life and get orthodox um, answers from the scripture um, about life and faith and what it meant, how it could be lived out. And no question was off limits. They asked, the, I mean, this is in the 60s and 70s. They're asking the craziest questions there are to ask. And, and Francis, in a non-judgmental way, was taking the scripture and saying, well, this is what the Bible teaches um, about that. 
And, uh, and while you were there, um, Edith would feed you and love on you and make you feel like you were one of the family. Um, and the Schaefers spent the latter half of their lives um, just doing life with whoever God sent to Labrie, um, to their chalet. So Labrie started with four rules. This is their only four rules. They would never ask for funds. They would trust God to answer and provide for them through prayer. They would never ask for volunteers. They would ask God to, they would pray that God would send the right people to them. They would never advertise for guests. They would just trust that God would send the people He wanted there. And they regularly prayed that God would keep out the people He didn't want there. Um, and then lastly, they made very short-term plans so that they could follow the Lord's leading um, at, the, at, the, at the drop of a hat. They didn't plan too far out in advance so that they could follow God. Um, and their house was always full, um, always full of passionate volunteers, and always had the funds necessary to run the ministry. Years before, Edith had begged God um, to leave them in St. Louis because um, she knew that Francis needed to minister to real people. That his his wor- world of thought and uh, ideas and and uh, the kind of vague uh, place of the mind was not good for him. Um, and God said no, but not really. God was answering Edith's prayer in a way that she could never have imagined. God gave Edith everything she prayed for, um, just not the way that Edith. Um, thought that she wanted him to. So, you know, sometimes God's no is not actually a no um, because he has something better planned for us. And if he were to say yes to the first prayer, it would get in the way of the better answer. Um, so Edith got to experience that. But here's what I love about Edith Schaefer. Um, we were talking in small group this past Thursday about this moment that the Old Testament and the New Testament were basically instigated. Um, like the moment God commissioned the writing of Scripture. Uh, the Old Testament began um, when something great and miraculous had happened between God and His people. And in Exodus 17, God said this, After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. And then he said, I'll remain the memory of Amalek from the earth. Um, so Moses was supposed to write down the story so that people could remember it permanently. Like this is an important story. Write it down. And that's your Bible. That became the Bible. Like they wrote, Moses obeyed, wrote it down, and, and we get to read that story. Um, so the Bible is a story of what God has done. Um, and it was recorded because God said to record it. Write this down. And the second time the Bible talks about the writing of the Bible um, is at Mount Sinai, Exodus 24. Moses had gone up into the mountain. God had gave him this covenant. Um, Moses offers it to his people and they say, yes, we will do this. We'll do everything God says. And it says like this. Then Moses went down to the people, repeated all the instructions and regulations that the Lord had given him. This is verbal. And the people answered with, with one voice, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. Then Moses sat down and carefully wrote down all the instructions. This is the second time the Bible talks about the writing of the Bible. So the people agree to the covenant, and then Moses records all the ins and outs of what that means, writes it down. So not only is the Scripture a story, which it is, it's a story. God says, hey, tell this story. But it's also the terms of what it means to live in covenant relationship between God and His people. It's also the, the terms of that. It's, it's what it looks like, what it means to walk in covenant with God. And that's the beginning of the Old Testament. The beautiful and rich blend of story and covenant responsibility. 
This is the story of God's people and this is what it means to live in covenant with God. And then Jesus com- completes His act of redemption um, for which He came and He commissions His followers in Matthew 28. He says, Therefore, go into the, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then teach them, these new disciples, teach, after they've been baptized, after they've been initiated, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And, and be sure that I'm with you until the end of the age. So what's interesting here, and we drew this out on Thursday night at small group, is in order, uh, the order of initiation and ordinance. So, so Moses offered the covenant to the people. People, um, you know, after they had entered covenant relationship, Moses writes it down. And it becomes a, something they could take with them and as a reminder of what they've done and, and how to live and what it means to live in covenant relationship with God. And then Jesus sends out his disciples. He says, now baptize new disciples, make them disciples, and then teach them everything I've taught you. Which means the scripture is, is, is written inside the covenant community. It's written inside and for the covenant community. So we have both testaments. Uh, they're both stories about what happened. We have the stories of Jesus. And inside those stories are the precepts of Jesus. This is how you should live. You should love people and you should love God. And, and you should take care of the poor and you should turn the other cheek. And you should be servant leadership. All these things, these precepts of what it means to live in covenant community with God. Um, along with the story. So this, this, the, the, but there's a piece we don't talk about. And Thursday, um, you know, right in the middle of, uh, right at the beginning of the, uh, the of, of the testaments, there's one thing that God instituted. Um, both Moses and Jesus said, did it. They, they tell the story. They said, go tell the story. Check. Live in the world according to the covenant relationship. Check. But in both instances, God gave his people one more thing that is central to these new people. You've got the story. You've got the rules. What it means to live in covenant relationship. This new nation, this new life. But there's one more thing you need. And in both cases, it was a meal. You need a meal. You have to eat together. In Exodus, God, God said you have to commemorate, actually reenact, is probably a better way of saying it, this moment of salvation. You need to relive over and over again this moment when I reached down and saved you from Egypt. And they, they call it Passover and they do it all the time. And the Jews still do that all the time. They relive this moment of salvation while sitting across the table from another human being and eating a meal together. And of course, Jesus did the same thing. Using that same meal that was instituted in Exodus, Jesus took it and changed it and said, whenever you gather together and eat, do it in remembrance of me. My broken body, my spilled blood, the moment I reached down and saved you. And the similarities are kind of striking. Look at this. Moses uh, took blood from the basin and splattered it all over the people, declaring, Look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you by giving these instructions. Jesus said, For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out for a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And I think it's significant that, that in this world of abstract history and, and the telling of a story from the past and the world of ideas as abstract as right and wrong and the debates over the best way to obey the precepts and covenants and in the midst of this grand and lofty world of ideas, God says, eat together. Eat together. How simple is that? Yes, tell the story. Study the story. That's important. Yes, study what it means to live a life of, of covenant and, and take that seriously. 
But you need to, to work out this salvation at a table. You need to sit down with other people on the same journey and eat together and remember together and tell the story together and live life together. Faith is a team sport. And what I love about Francis and Edith Schaefer is the fact that they so perfectly exemplify the whole package. When you read about Francis Schaeffer's ideas and theology, they, they always say that one of his greatest struggles in life was to find the balance between the rigidity of standing for the truth, for the truth's sake, no matter who you hurt to do it, and truly loving people in such a way that they actually feel the love of Christ. They say that he wrestled with that his whole life. Because that's the rubbing point, if we want to be honest about it. If we're honest enough to own it. In the Gospels, the sinners almost always felt the love of God in Christ. The religious people didn't. And sometimes we, when we stand firm for the truth, it's the religious people that have no trouble feeling the love of God. It's the sinners who don't. And that's the problem. The biographies say that, that um, this reality of, of what it means to stand for the truth now versus what it looked like and, and who experienced the love of God in the truth in the gospel versus now, they say that it bugged Francis Schaeffer his whole life. Supposedly, if you ask Francis Schaeffer about it, he would tell you that his struggle was less ideas and concepts that he struggled with and it was his wife he struggled with. Because he loved the world of thought and ideas and it was his wife that kept pulling him back to people. Whenever he got too into the world of ideas, Edith would pull him back to a table where there was a real human looking him in the face who had real questions, who really needed someone to see them. In other words, Edith would sit Francis down with one of those sinners who felt the love of God when they talked to Jesus. Edith Schaefer was a, a brilliant woman. Everyone who knew her marveled at her grasp of Scripture and her keen mind for talking about the things of God, but it was her love and hospitality that truly made her different. There's this famous story where she was on a book tour after Francis had died. She was leaving the hotel to go to kind of a big deal book signing, kind of a, a high-end deal. And she saw this hotel worker crying. And so she stopped to check on her. And as the lady began to unpack her issues, Edith, without a look back, ditched the whole signing and stayed administered to this lady to minister to a stranger. She saw people. The big ideas that she was very adept at discussing were meaningless to her if they weren't being used to love people and make people feel seen and heard by God. And because of the faith of Edith Schaefer and her husband Francis, today there are Labrie houses all over the planet. And they're still filled with people who come to sit down at a table and be seen. So how do we respond to this? The weird thing about this morning's topic for me is we all know in our guts the truth of it. We all know that ideas are powerful and the redemptive story is powerful and good for us. But if we're honest, it's people who have the real impact on us. They did a study uh, several years ago where they, they, they asked people to write down like their, the ten most impactful sermons that had an impact on their life. And then the ten most impactful songs that had an impact on their life. And then the ten most impactful people that had an impact on their life. And the study wasn't anything other than how many people could come up with 
And how long would it take to come up with ten sermons? How long would it come to take up with ten sermons? How long would it come take to come up with ten people? Almost nobody could come up with ten sermons that truly impacted their life. Which really makes my job suck. <laughs> they couldn't do it. They, they were like, I listen to a sermon every week. They're all awesome. I don't know. Which ones are the best? I don't know. They're Maybe two. I can maybe think of two. Songs, they got farther. Most people got farther into songs. And these songs rock my world. They're great songs. Very few people could get all ten. That really life-changing. No one had problems coming up with ten people. These ten people shaped me. They, they rocked my world. These are, these are who changed my life. We all know it's true. Like we, all, we all know we put all this weight on the ideas. We put all these weight on the... Th- and they're important. Please don't think I'm saying they're not important. They're hugely important. But we feel like that's what being a Christian is about. It's about the ideas, the thoughts, the concept, the, the, the theology. But we all know what changes us as people. It's people who see us, people who are there with us, people who say, like Paul did, oh, you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus? Come follow me. I'm doing my best. I'm going to fall down, but you're also going to get to watch me get up and repent and apologize. And, and if you want to see what it's like to, to live a, a Christian life, follow me. We call it discipleship. And unfortunately, today we've made discipleship something you do in a class. Like if you get all the right information, you blah, blah, blah. And we used to do that. This is the weird thing. We used to do that before you became a Christian. You used to sit down in catechism classes and they wanted to make sure you knew what you were doing before you got in. Then once you got in, you followed somebody. Like, like do life with somebody. That's how you do discipleship. I don't even know where I'm at. I'm so far off track. I'm not suggesting that we give up all the truths of Scripture by any means. And the redemptive story is so important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we just sit around and eat, eat together and go, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. We eat. That's not it. Although I would... I would rock the Christian world. No, the truths of Scripture are important. The redemptive story is important. But we can't treat hospitality and fellowship as like a tool of evangelism or, or you know, a technique for getting to know people. That's not what it is. A shared life is as essential. Meals and chores and parties and pains and laughter and tears, even boredom and ritual and monotony, these are just as important to faith as anything else. When God gave us the Scripture, He also gave us a meal. When Jesus gave us the New Testament, He also gave us a meal. Real life shared together is is as fundamental to the Christian faith as the Bible. God called us to do life together, and it's always been that way. Always, always, always. People who take that seriously, like the Schaefers, are sometimes looked at like revolutionaries. Just because they're doing life the way the Bible said to. The way the early church did. They gathered in people's homes, house to house, broke bread, spent time together. People treated Edith Schaefer like she was a radical for loving people at her dining room table instead of a church building. But I think she was tapping into something as old as the Bible. We're supposed to tell the stories, yes. We're supposed to live in the covenant according to the precepts of the covenant, yes. And we're also supposed to eat together. So as we close this year's series, um, I'd love it if we would respond exactly the way the writer of Hebrews told us to. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, let's strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sins that easily trip us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us.